Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'm filling in for Beth Heaton, the regular host. Now on to today. For our second segment, I'm excited to have Julia Jones, former admission officer at Brandeis and veteran of College Coach. She and I will be discussing ways to make demonstrated interest work for you. For our third segment, Sarah Calvert Kubram, college coach consultant who is most recently of the Lewis and Clark Office of Admission, will be joining us. She and I will be talking about the best ways to communicate with colleges. But first, we'll be talking with Jean Mahan, veteran of college coach finance um, finance component, on regarding how to compare award letters. This should be of prime interest to any of you who are seniors concerned about understanding your finance and merit scholarship aid awards. Welcome, Jean. Hi, how are you today, Sally? I'm good. I'm good. Um, how are you doing? Not bad. It's a little chilly in New England, but, you know, yeah. we're sticking it out. <laughs> exactly. It is indeed very cold here. At least it's sunny. As long as you're warm inside, you yes. can look out the window at the sun. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> All right. Okay. So um, I've been hearing from some of the families who I work with that they're starting to receive financial aid awards um, from schools. And a couple of families, well, let's say probably the a lot of families <laughs> feel yeah. like they didn't get enough to really make this a financial reality for their kids. Um, do they have any options at this point to negotiate a different award? Yeah, sure. So that's a great question. And I've been getting that question a lot lately, too, as the financial aid awards start to come in. So it's really hard sometimes because all the schools use kind of a different format. So if a family's trying to compare, they're not always comparing apples to apples. So remember that there's different costs of attendance and some schools just have uh, deeper pockets and award more money than other schools. Um, and so it's really difficult sometimes to sit down and really look at these and say, wow, this is, you know, this is what I'm getting. What I usually recommend families do is sort of take the cost of attendance, subtract out all the free money for the grants and the scholarships, and then whatever's left over is what's called the net price. And you're going to have to come up with that net price, either through loans or money that you've saved or, you know, current income. So, you know, once you've done that, maybe you're thinking, well, you know, there's some really some situations that we have here that they don't really understand. So families can always go back to the financial aid office and ask for more. But before we go too far here, I want to make sure that our listeners understand the difference between appealing a financial aid package and negotiating an increase in a merit scholarship. The financial aid award is based on the family's finances. The merit scholarship is awarded in almost every case by the admissions office because the student has a great academic record or they have an athletic or artistic talent or they're a great candidate for the college's honors program. There could be many other reasons as well. Um, Our discussion today is going to be focused on getting more need-based financial aid, but my colleague, Tara Piantonita Kelly, will be discussing negotiating merit scholarships on next week's program. So tune in if you're looking for suggestions on how to increase the merit scholarship your student was offered. Today, we're just going to be talking about need-based financial aid. Mm -hmm. So need-based, just for shorthand, yeah, this is based on what your family, the kind of assets and income that your family has. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, those of the our listeners who have already completed a FAFSA this year know that there's no space on there to include information about special circumstances such as a decrease in their salary, a job loss. Maybe that family's providing ongoing financial support for relatives, or they have um, educational or medical needs of a family member. So those just a few of the the kind of special circumstances that I see fairly often. Um, on the CSS profile form, which about 300 schools use, there is space on there for you to discuss special circumstances, but many schools accept only the FAFSA. So it's kind of difficult to know what to do. Um, families with students applying for the upcoming school year will tell me that, you know, in 2017, which is their base year for reporting, that it showed significantly higher income than what 
2018 shows, and they're wondering if they're stuck kind of using 2017's income. And I always encourage families to send a letter of appeal to the financial aid offices at the schools um, requesting that the family's 2018 income be used instead um, because, obviously, you know, two years back, it's things things changed. And the schools are usually good about, you know, looking at the, in, at the current income to, to make a better financial decision. Um, I mentioned some other appealable situations, and those could be things like high out-of-pocket medical expenses. Um, maybe you have someone in your family who has an ongoing medical situation, and even though you have insurance, sometimes the copay is really high, or you've got a large deductible that you need to meet every year. And so, or you have medical equipment, medications, those kinds of things. So that's one situation that I, I used to see fairly often in financial aid offices. You know, people would be appealing based on, based on medical situations. Maybe there's a, another child in the family, a sibling of the student, and they attend a private school because they need a special educational setting. So those tuition fees or any special programs that that sibling is involved in might also be um, something that the school will look at. Um, I mentioned that some parents uh, provide a lot of support to extended family members. It could be that they have parents living with them, you know, grandparents of the student. spoke to a, a dad recently who has been um, supporting two nephews for at least 10 years and supporting their college educations. So definitely something that he needs to go back to those schools and let them know about because that's really a significant change in his, in his income that he had nowhere to report. Um, and with an appeal letter, the family should try to include supporting documentation. So if your income was lower in 2018, send a copy of your 2018 federal tax return. Um, or at this point, if you've not done your taxes yet, which most of us haven't, maybe a W-2. And if it's medical or educational expenses, provide amounts. Um, the fa- same with family support, how much, how often. Um, because the school is definitely going to come back and ask for that. They may ask for more than what you initially provided, so be prepared. And in that letter, just say, hey, you know, this is the best place to reach me at this email address or this phone number or whatever kind of thing. Um, another situation that I really see quite often is... Um, an increase in income from families who have maybe sold stock to pay for tuition expenses. And now that sale is showing up as an increase in income due to a capital gain. And so, you know, the family feels like they're kind of getting hit twice. They got hit originally because it was an asset, and then they get hit again the next year when it's being sold to pay for tuition. So that's another reason why you might want to contact the financial aid office and ask if they could exclude that gain from the family's income. Um, an important thing to remember, which I think a lot of families don't realize, is that income drives the formula, which determines the expected family contribution. You know, a lot of the times families will say, oh, how do I hide my assets to make myself look more eligible? It's really not the assets that are, you know, doing most families in. It's, it's income. So the school isn't likely to exclude that capital gain entirely, but they may move it over into the asset category, which where it has a lot smaller impact. Um, same would be true if a family took a withdrawal from a retirement plan, either because they were having financial difficulties or they were using those funds to pay for tuition. So always great to reach out to the school to see how they can help when you find yourself in a situation like this. Okay, great. And what about, um, I mean, is there ever a time when a family has some kind of other change in circumstance, for example, or? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that happens a lot. So sometimes it happens on the front end, you know, some families have submitted a fast in October of of this past year, and now all of a sudden there's been a change, you know, a job loss, something like that. So yes, definitely reach out to the school, but sometimes it happens after the student is enrolled. So School starts in August or September, and then all of a sudden, a parent loses a job uh, or some other something awful might happen. Um, that's why I always encourage families to submit financial aid applications, even when they think they won't qualify for need-based financial aid, because you never know what could change. And if you have those applications on file with the financial aid office and something does change, then you can you know, just reach out to them and it's going to result in a a faster review by the school and you're not going to be in a situation where in a stressful time in your life, 
you're now having to fill out financial aid forms. So I just tell families, you know what, it's sort of just like a little safety net, fill it out, send it in, um, and then if, you know, if the unthinkable happens, then, you know, at least you can reach out to the school and they've got all the information there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I will say sometimes families who haven't thought they were going to receive aid actually did at the more mm-hmm. expensive schools. Like I had a student, right. um, a family at, at Dartmouth actually, really, you know, they didn't receive a huge amount, but they received, actually it was pretty good. It was 10000 a year. And, and you know, because right. Dartmouth is a very expensive school and that makes a difference over four years. It totally does. And I always say to people, you don't want to leave any money on the table, even if it's only 1000 2000 Yeah, it may not be much, and it's not going to make a huge dent in what you have to pay, but it's 1000 or 2000 less that's coming out of your pocket or that you have to borrow. So that's why I always encourage. It's just like I said, it's kind of a little insurance policy, you know, just in case you need to, it's there. Um, I think what's important to remember is, in general, if your financial situation hasn't changed since you submitted the applications and you don't have any unusual circumstances, then there's really nothing to appeal. Um, Not all schools are able to fully cover a family's unmet need, and that gap becomes the family's responsibility. So, you know, you may not like what they're telling you you have to pay, but, you know, if nothing's changed, then you really don't have really really grounds to go on. if we have some listeners uh, today who have younger high school students and they're looking for a list of colleges that offer the most financial aid, they might want to check out our Insider blog post that was published on September 18th, 2018. Um, it's, it's just simply called Colleges That Offer the Most Financial Aid, and it was written by my awesome colleague, Shannon Vasconcello. So, for, you know, there's about 75 schools that meet in the United States that meet full need. Um, and so, and it's, it's demonstrated need, not what a family thinks they need, but demonstrated need by, you know, by way of the financial aid applications that they've submitted. So definitely check that out if you have a ninth, 10th, or an 11th grader and you're looking for schools that, you know, cover a lot for families. Just remember that they tend to be the most selective schools in the country, um, generally because they have the biggest endowments. So no surprise there. Right, right. Absolutely. All right. Listen, Mm -hmm. thanks so much, Jean. Oh, you're welcome, Sally. It was great to be here. Stay warm. Thank you. You too. All right, everyone. So now we'll be taking a short break. But when we return, we'll be talking with Julia Jones about demonstrated interest at colleges. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters the one in the envelope that says yes visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in think you've seen everything there is to see in online television let us surprise you visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports health business and more on demand 24 7 You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break... We'll now be talking to Julia Jones about demonstrated interest at colleges. Welcome, Julia. Hey, Sally. How are you? 
I'm good. I'm good. And hopefully you're staying warm, too. So far, I've been talking to people in Massachusetts, so it's cold up yep. there. I'm in chilly New Hampshire, so yes, it is very cold here. Not as cold as some places, but it is it is still uh, quite brisk. <laughs> yes, yes, brisk is the word. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, well, let's start with, I know that some people, when I talk about demonstrated interest, I know that some people um, don't even know what that means. Like, I actually talked to a woman once who thought demonstrated interest meant demonstrating interest in a major, so I had to, like, start over from the beginning there. So let's start with that definition. Sure. Well, a demonstrated interest um, is, is basically showing your interest in the college or university. So, um, you know, what colleges often do if they, and not all schools do this, but those that track interest, um, they're basically, you know, they make notes of every contact that you have as a, as a student uh, with them. Um, obviously, you know, calls, emails, um, meeting a, 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 an admissions rep at your high school or in your hometown or at a reception, um, doing an interview. And the gold standard, I think, which is visiting the campus. Um, and so, you know, if they track it, it becomes, for some, some schools, it can be a factor in admissions where they're sort of looking and trying to gauge, you know, as, as much as they can, your level of interest in them um, as, as they're making their admissions decisions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So why yeah. is that important? Like, why have colleges? I mean, I think a lot of us think yeah. back to you know, when we were applying to college, and I'm certainly as old as, you know, the parents of a lot of the um, students that I talked to. And, uh, you know, I know the colleges didn't look at that. In fact, I didn't even visit the college I ended up attending until I set on foot for the first day of orientation, which, mind you, I don't advise, like, regardless of whether the college tracks or not, worked out very well for me. But so, um, so yeah, why, why did colleges start paying attention to this? I think it, it's mostly due to um, to yield numbers. I mean, it's it's you know admissions, especially over the years, has become a much more of a, of a bit of a numbers. And I hate to say game, but it is sort of a you know a real focus on enrollment numbers and strategy. And so you know they're looking to admit as few students as possible. Every college wants to have a really low acceptance rate, um, but they want you know the highest return on those acceptances. They want to accept students basically who want them. So um, so again. Again, that's part of why, really, the main reason why they do that is to try and gauge it. It's not perfect, obviously, for, you know, many reasons students can't always, you know, um, don't always know this or don't always show that interest or can't, you know, get to the campus. But it gives them a little bit of, of that, uh, you know, that insight. Um, and it is a trend. I mean, I, you know, when I, I, I'm with you, Sally. I mean, when I was looking at colleges and applying to colleges myself, it was definitely not a thing. Um, and even when I worked in admissions, um, I worked at Brandeis, and, and it wasn't until my last couple of years that we really started to, to make an effort to do that, um, to, you know, to look at students in terms of, um, you know, their, their likelihood for accepting our offer, especially for students that we thought might actually be using us as, as a safety school, that might be looking at more competitive schools, and, and so we were really trying to gauge, oh, should we, should we offer and accept to a student that, that we really don't think is, is interested in us other than just as a Backup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember at the University of, of Chicago, which was my last few years of an, in admission. And by the way, I want to make it clear that they have a new dean there now, so they're I don't know what their policies are now. But back then, we didn't really track it except for students that live driving distance. So that's mm-hmm. the other thing to kind of keep in mind. Like we didn't expect a student yeah. from California to visit. We wanted them to, but we didn't need them to. But if you were like an hour away in the northern suburbs or two hours away and you never visited, then we were really going to think, you know, you're just not that interested in us. And that, right, so right. I, I want to yeah. kind of make that point too, is that some colleges will track it for the local area, but not for uh, kind of students that are, you know, farther away. Exactly, and I and I think that's still the case. That was our the case in our uh, at Brandeis as well when I was there. And, and same thing. I mean, it's been a while since I've been in that office, so I don't know. You know, new dean, new new uh, administration. So it's it's it. I you know I don't know off the top of my head if, if Brandeis does still track. My instinct is that they do, um, because I think it generally tends to be the smaller schools, the schools that do you know that are highly selective, but not most selective, because they're the ones that are that are you know really 
super focused on yield. Um, and so, uh, and trying to really, uh, and to gauge that. But it is, it is of course relative and it's not something where, you know, we were looking at it in a vacuum. I think we were always looking at it from a standpoint of, um, you know, is, is visiting easy, you know, for a student who was in, um, you know, in the Boston area, who was, you know, within a driving distance of, of our campus and didn't make the effort to come, um, to visit or if we went to their high school, if there were multiple opportunities for a student to in some way show interest and they didn't, that, that was a big red flag for us. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, we didn't expect even the North Dakota students to visit. I mean, it's still in the Midwest, but also like we right. never went to their high school. The fact that they found us, period, was kind of miraculous. So, you know, right. it's a different level of expectation. Um, but yeah, sure. if you were from a Chicago suburban high school with very fine college counseling, which most of them did have, then we weren't cutting you any slack on that. So um, sure. and I like sure. what you said about highly selective, but not most selective. I mean, I think some students here, this and they think, okay, I'm going to go and like camp out in the Harvard admission office. And, you know, first of all, that's a terrible (laughs) idea because they're going to find you really annoying. A father tried to do that to me at Chicago and I like seriously considered calling the police. It's like, you need to leave my space. You are being creepy. Um, So first of all, like, you know, don't do that because that's weird. But also colleges like Stanford, Harvard, they already know that you're coming. If they admit you, you're coming. So it's not the most selective schools that this matters to, it matters to those schools in the middle where they're still turning down a lot, maybe even a majority of their students, but they also know they're going to lose out to those kind of schools that are sort of a higher tier of selectivity. Exactly. Yeah. And so, and I think, and you raise a really good point too, Sally, of that it's not, you know, I think the misconception um, that I've heard from, from some students that I've worked with has been, oh, well, I, you know, I need to be contacting them all the time. You know, I need to call and email and, and no, <laughs> you really don't. They don't, they, you know, admissions offices do not need to be hearing from you every week. Um, I think, you know, it's, but there are multiple ways to, to actually show your interest and it does not, it just, you know, it doesn't mean you have to visit. Visiting I think is obviously it's the gold standard. It's the best way for um, you know for you to show your interest. It's the best way for you to also find out about the school. So I think you know there's there's value on on both sides of it. Um, but it's not the only way. And and I think you can you know again admissions officers spend a huge chunk of their time in the fall and in the spring traveling around the country, visiting high schools, um, doing receptions, doing interviews with students. So you know that's something I always advise students. It's, you know, if, if a, an admissions rep that of a school that you are interested in is coming to your high school, tr- do whatever you can to to visit, to shake their hand, to get, um, you know, to just to make sure that you're there. Um, if if they're coming and doing a reception in your area, absolutely go because that too gets tracked, and um, and that's another and it's a great alternative if it's a school that's too far for you to visit or that you just don't have, you know, aren't aren't able to get to physically to the campus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that counts. Yeah, and I actually, I mean, it was, um, you know, when I would visit high school, sometimes students would run in and they'd say, I have a calculus test, I can't stay, but I just wanted to, you know, say hello, I love University of Chicago, or I love Reed, you know, or something like that. And sometimes they'd even have like a note for me, and that way I could track that particular Mm -hmm. interest. So that is another way to do it, even if you just cannot miss class that day. Um, you know, yeah. I always or have your guidance counselor, that. you know, who, yeah, you know, some, I've had some, some cases where the guidance counselor has said, oh my gosh, you know, Sally really wanted to be here, but couldn't get out of class, but she's really super interested in your school. And so again, great way to, to, that's what you're doing is you're just letting the admissions rep know, okay, you know, this is someone that I want to watch for. I want to, you know, keep an eye out and, and, or, you know, make a note in the student's file and in, the, in their record so that when the application does come, you know, we have on really right there on the screen, okay, these are all all the, con- the points of contact of value that, that the student has had. So to really just show that they're, they're, it's more than just, okay, filling out the common app and sending it in um, and, uh, you know, with, without any other, other show of interest. Yeah, I, I talked to a, um, a former rep at Amherst, and he said that they would call those kinds of applications ghost applications, like because suddenly <laughs> they just appeared out of nowhere, and there'd been no other yep. contact at all. So, um, so sure. yeah, even if you can't visit, visiting is the gold standard, but even if you can't visit, there's other ways to be in touch. Um, right. But yeah. again, yeah. I just want to say, too, I had another student who, not going to reveal the name of the school, because yeah. I don't want any identifying characteristics out there. 
there who decided that his way to get into a school was to email that school every single week. Um, and it was a highly no. selective school. And I want to be clear about that. Because honestly, if a student had emailed me weekly at Whittier, which is selective, but not highly selective, I probably would have been fine with it. I would have kind of wondered about like his social life a little bit, but you know, like, I wouldn't, it, like, wouldn't have annoyed me particularly because we had a more, uh, we just had more time per student to spend, you right. know, per applicant. Yeah. But this was at a highly selective school. And I honestly think that that played a role in him being denied. I can't say for sure that he would have gotten in without it, but um, when I was a high school counselor, I actually had a conversation with the admissions rep about it, and you know, she was like, "I think he's really immature because he's emailing me every single week." So yeah, yeah, it's I think really it's, it's not like I just want to really underline that doing too much is also a problem. Yeah. I think it's with anything. It's you want it to be of value and focused, and you know, so that that way, again, emailing someone on ra- randomly every week is not is doesn't doesn't sh- you know send, they send a different message. You know, if you have a, a genuine question, or if there's perhaps a professor that you'd you know like to contact in a department and that you may be interested in, yes, by by all means, you know, that's that's why admissions officers are there, and and that can be a really great way to you know uh, to, to not only get your interest across, but to also talk about something that you're interested in. Um, but yeah, a, a constant contact is, is not necessarily, is, is again, can backfire in a big way. Right, will not, will right, not do right. Service. Yeah, but when it's known in terms of etiquette too, like if you meet someone, you know, sometimes students will email after a high school visit, thanks for your conversation with me. Definitely yeah. after an interview, little, you know, a thank you email. And then I know that there's some schools like Elon, uh, when I actually went and visited them, um, they made it very clear that they care about expressions of interest and you still don't need to email them once a week <laughs> I want to be clear <laughs> right. um, but they definitely yeah. track and the woman actually said we love it if we get an email with they email us when they've submitted the application even if they haven't mm-hmm. had a chance to meet with us yet if they yeah. email the area rep and say like hey I submitted an application I'm so excited so that they know that you're kind of expressing that interest in like an extra way Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, if there's a reason to email or a reason to, you know, and, and sometimes, yeah, submitting an application or just, you know, have, having had a tour and, and, again, writing a thank you or a meeting with a rep and writing a thank you note, I think that those are, are great opportunities to, um, you know, to, to reach out. Or if there's an update, you know, say you get, in, you get selected for National Honor Society after you've put your application in, you know, great way to, to, to let the, the admissions office know that um, and, again, connect, connect with your, you know, and share your interest. Um, you know, and I, I think that that's and, and also important to note that there are ways in many applications to really show that interest. Um, you know, a lot of schools, I think, more more often more than ever, are you know have essays that that really um, ask that question. So, why are you interested in the school, or why are you applying to our college? And um, you know, there are even some schools where you know they say, hey, this essay is almost as important, if not more so, than others. I know University of Pennsylvania's, you know. Why Penn essay is is you know really crucial. USC has you know University of Southern California has you know been pretty vocal about hey that you know determining fit that showing your interest is is you know that that's where you really need to do it in the essays. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and you know I know we've talked about this in other other segments, but you know writing those essays sometimes visiting colleges and doing your research is the best way to um, you know to, to to be able to to write those essays in a very specific and detailed way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually always advise students when they're doing the why essay, like if you visited, say, um, I, you know, I remember on my visit talking to a student who was doing blah, 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 like you're giving it that more personal touch, you know, yeah. like, like they kind yeah. of write about their direct observations on the visit. And um, those can be very powerful. And they can, and usually then also, even if you didn't have an official visit, you know, the people reading your application know you were there and know that you had that contact with the school and that you have an understanding. Because it was interesting at Chicago, yeah. while we didn't do Back then, you know, we didn't do demonstrated interest in a big way other than for local students. Um, We did care a lot, like you said, about match. 
you know, and whether mm-hmm. a student understood what what we were. So absolutely right. correct that the YSA and the same thing with Reed. Reed wasn't even, you know, as selective um, as it is now, but we cared very, very deeply that students knew what Reed was because it's a very, mm-hmm. you know, whenever an institution is like Reed or Chicago and it's a very particular kind of institution that is going to be great for some students, but maybe not for others, they're going to really pay attention to that. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I think it, it's, you know, that my advice to students, whether they know if a school, you know, tra- tracks interest or not, because it's, sometimes it's hard to, to find that information out. You know, sometimes you can mm-hmm. ask and a lot of, sometimes colleges put that information on their website. Um, sometimes you can find it if you're looking at a school profile on like Big Future or, you know, and where it might say, what are the, the items, the criteria, and sometimes I'll say, you know, level of, stu- of students' interest is important. Um, but either way, I mean, even if you don't know, it, I, I would always err on the side of, of, you know, if you can visit, do. Um, if you, you know, whatever contact you can have with a college, you know, that like the ones we've talked about, you know, when they're visiting the rep when they're in town, um, doing an interview if it's offered, um, and, uh, you know, and, and really being thoughtful, but, you know, contacting, contacting a college if, you know, if you've got a question or really just, uh, those are all things that, that for even schools that don't, tra- if you don't know if they track, um, it's, it's not going to hurt you <laughs> necessarily. So, um, and right. I think, it, it, again, the benefits will really, you know, in some cases can, can far outweigh, um, you know, it, I don't think there are any negatives to doing that. Right, right. Yeah, there's yeah. definitely no negatives. I mean, in general, you should visit if you're able to. Now, the good news mm-hmm. that I would say is that if a school tells you they don't care whether you visit or not, they don't track that, you can believe them. Right. Like if they're definitively saying that is not something that we track, then Mm -hmm. I think you can be very comfortable that they do not care and they do not track that. It's the schools that don't say anything where you have to kind of think it might be better if I visit. Although I will say that I think most, not all, but most large public universities do not care whether you visit. I mean, I can say for sure that the, you know, like mm. UC Berkeley, UCLA, schools like that, I mean, they can't keep track of that. Are you kidding me? Like, they're like, right. you know, you're well, so yeah, many I think, thousands. I think the ones that, I think the ones that are probably most likely going to be are the small liberal arts colleges, um, you know, the schools like Skidmore, like Trinity, um, you know, like, you know, like a Reed, for example. I mean, the, whether some of them weigh much more heavily on that and some, you know, will we'll factor it in um, for, again, for local students or, or, you know, have that be, or maybe for some of their, some, you know, students with a really high profile that they want, you know, that they suspect may not be as, as serious of, of an interest, those ghosts applications, if you will. So, um, but again, it's, it's likely going to be smaller schools, um, you know, schools that are not among the most selective colleges in, in the country, um, not the large, pro, you know, public universities for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Great. Thank you so much, yeah. Julia. All right. Well, thanks and stay warm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you. And by the way, I just want to be clear to all of our, um, all the folks that are listening is we're, we're not talking about like, if you've been waitlisted or deferred, that's a different animal um, but you can do a search on the college coach website about you know what what should I do if I've been deferred or what should I do if I've been waitlisted so just you know be aware of that that we do cover that in a different segment um, this is for students before they've applied or, or maybe just after um, all right so yeah so thanks so much Julia we're going to be taking a short break but when we get back I'll be welcoming Sarah Calvert Kubram to discuss communicating with colleges The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Sally. How are you? I'm very good. Um, Thank you. So we're going to be talking about communicating to colleges. And I think the first thing that it's important for people to know is why is it important to think about how to communicate with colleges? Like we talked about demonstrated interest in the last segment. I think people understand there's that concrete reason. But what are what Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, what's the importance of just sort of learning how to communicate with colleges and the best way to do that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think that on a broader philosophical level, I think about communicating with colleges as a fantastic opportunity um, for parents to really empower their students to take the driver's seat, to take control, to really feel confident to lead the communication with college. This is a pivotal part of their transition from adolescence into young adulthood, and it's wonderful if parents can help mentor, coach, support their students, but use this as an opportunity for the student to really step up and take the lead. Um, You know, students are really stepping into that active young adult life as college students, so this is a great opportunity to show that they're ready for that and take, contra- take control, take charge of that opportunity. So I think philosophically, it's a really pivotal way to engage with students and show that maturity and readiness in communicating um, and taking the lead rather than letting the parents to do it for, it, for them, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I was going to say that, I mean, I think that you're really highlighting something that I always recommend to parents. Whenever possible, your student should be doing the communication. You can certainly help them out by, you know, scheduling a campus visit online or something like that. But if you have a substantive Mm -hmm. question, have your student do it. Do you agree with that? Oh, completely. And I I think that it can be a little bit intimidating for a lot of students and perhaps a bit scary for parents because they're not ready yet for their kids to fly. Um, But I think that it's a great opportunity in the safety of the home environment to start practicing that. And as someone who worked in admissions at a smaller liberal arts college, I loved it when I heard directly from students because it showed that they were thoughtfully engaging in the process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think also the parents are showing them that they trust them to handle things, you know, oh, um, and, and if the student is really nervous, the parent can even give them kind of a script for the first call, and then they'll realize that mm-hmm. admission officers don't bite, <laughs> so, yeah. um, which yeah, is yeah, always nice. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> so how, I mean, I think rapid changes in technology are also changing communication practices, so what are the main ways that colleges are communicating with students these days? Yeah, you know, I, I laugh about this a lot, um, both in my professional work and supporting relatives and family as they apply to colleges, because although I don't think of myself as young, as old, I'm sorry, um, I applied to college on paper, and it was before email was really, really embedded in our day-to-day life. 
Um, and communication was different. We physically mailed things and we picked up the phone. Um, so I think with that rapid evolution of the changes in technology, we see that our young adults now in their day-to-day life, quite frankly, are engaging more with online media sources, social media, much more than they are with actual phone calls, email, written communication in a more professional setting. Um, so I think it's good for students to pause and think with their parents of how they're going to engage in technology and communication in this process. Um, It might sound really simple and basic, but a lot of families I've worked with are really surprised to realize that, you know, a lot of students aren't comfortable writing emails or making professional phone calls. Um, Simply put, all colleges and universities have slightly different techniques and strategies of how they communicate with colleges. However, Overwhelmingly, the vast majority of communication between colleges and students is via email. I think that it can be very overwhelming for students to keep track of all that email. So a little bit later in the segment, we can talk about some ideas that I have on how to manage that. Um, But for students to really be ready to effectively manage email, because that is the way that students are going to find out that they need to log into their online system to find out if they're admitted, the way that they're going to get important messages about opportunities to meet with admissions officers, like our colleague Julia was talking to you about earlier, um, email is the, the core. Um, increasingly, a lot of colleges and universities are using text messages to market big events. So they might reach out and tell students, oh, we have a special open house opportunity for admitted students. Or they may send out a mass text to say that they have released the admissions decisions and to log into their portal. Um, texts, though, for the most part, are less transactional where the student is replying. It's more of a way for them to get big messages out. Um, I think that students in today's era are so used to texting versus emailing or calling that they're quick to want to text back. But for the most part, colleges are not using text in that way. It's much more of a bigger outreach method. Um, The other thing is phone calls. That can really vary drastically by the type of college or university. For the most part, college admissions officers are not calling students unless there's something they really need to get through to them about, Um, or maybe they have an interview scheduled and they need to reschedule or something pivotal in their application. Um, But phone calls can be a really powerful tool for students to get information that they need. Um, Also, a lot of smaller colleges have special programs where students, admissions officers, and faculty might call the student directly once they've been admitted, which is a wonderful opportunity for students to learn about the college. But I think it can be often intimidating for students to pick up their phone. Um, So I'd say predominantly email, occasionally a little bit of text, but also being prepared for some phone calls to possibly be part of the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good idea to know the area code for the college because those might be, you know, uh, and like the first three, you know, digits after the area code, because then you'll know that it's probably worth it for you to pick up the phone. Um, (laughs) Definitely, (laughs) definitely. So what can a junior in high school do to set up for communicating with colleges? What are some of the things they need to think about? Yeah, so as I alluded to, I, I think that with all of these changes in technology, a lot of current adolescents just aren't using email, phone, and voicemail to the extent that you and I might use. Um, So really taking some time junior year before a student finalizes a list of colleges they're going to apply to, to really get organized and come up with their system of how they're going to manage this. A few ideas that I've seen be very, very effective is first with email, it can be great to create an email account that the student is only going to use for the colleges that they are seriously interested in, so maybe the ones they're going to visit, the ones they definitely think they might apply to, as well as the colleges that they apply to. This is a way that they can narrow the volume of emails that they're getting and make sure they don't miss anything important. What happens is when students do things like take the SAT or ACT, they start getting flooded by marketing materials from a lot of colleges and universities 
universities that can be really overwhelming and it can make it so that they miss important emails. So that's why I recommend creating a separate email account only for the schools that they're very interested in and are actually thinking of applying to so that once they get key pivotal emails, for instance, instructions on how to log into their online portal to see their application status, notification that their application has been submitted, is complete, issues of their financial aid applications, et cetera, that they're not going to miss something. Um, so definitely a, a dedicated email account, I think, can be really, really helpful. The other basic practice that I, um, again, might sound straightforward, but I think just isn't thought about is making sure that a student's voicemail is not only set up, but that it's always um, open for messages, that their inbox isn't full. Um, on the rare occasion that admissions offices need to contact students, um, maybe there's something pivotal wrong with their application, like a, a missing Social Security number that they need to match to their financial aid application, or they have to reschedule their campus visit, something important. Um, it's quite often that admissions officers try to call the student only to discover that their inbox is full. Um, so I think junior year is a really good time to make sure that all the systems are in place to be ready. Um, with voicemail also, making sure that it is a professional-sounding message, something very simple. Hi, you have reached Sarah. Please leave a message and I'll get back to you. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've tried to call students and there's been something inappropriate or, you know, a music song or something that perhaps you might not want a college admissions officer to hear. Um, but just making sure all those systems are set up, ready to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and speaking of, that email address you set up should not say something like Pimp Daddy um, on it. <laughs> or <laughs> I mean, I've frankly seen worse <laughs> than that. Like, that is at least G-rated enough that I can mention it on the air here. But uh, yeah. I've seen some really bad email addresses. So come up with something neutral, maybe first initial name, yeah. something like that would be fine. Yes, I completely um, agree with you. And I, I have seen many of those as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, all right. So what role does social media play in college admissions process? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of teenagers now are engaging heavily in social media. Um, and that is changing really fast. It, it used to be that Facebook was the really big social media and it's still used, but rapidly um, that is kind of becoming a site that's not used as much by current teenagers and other apps are. Um, what I would say is that students need to be cognizant that although colleges do use social media for advertising, for announcing opportunities to visit campus, Sometimes they also have closed Facebook groups and other social media groups for admitted students to get to know each other. Those are all great platforms for students to perhaps interact with other admitted students, current students, learn about the college, follow them, see pictures. But students still want to be really careful to interact with them in a professional and mature manner. Um, Sometimes Students will post things thinking that it's just student to student, not realizing that the vice president of admissions also can view that page. So remembering that um, it's still important to be mature, professional, presenting as you would to a professional admissions officer in those spaces. The, Mm -hmm. The other thing that I encourage students to do, and this is a good junior year task as well, is to log out of all of their social media accounts and search their name. Do a quick online Google search of their name and social media and see what pops up. Um, you want to make sure that your presence in social media that is publicly searchable is appropriate, that it is the version of yourself that you would put forward to an admissions committee. Um, that doesn't mean you have to be fake. You can be authentic and goofy in yourself, but definitely wanting just like that email address for it to be appropriate and to be something that you don't mind being publicly viewable. Um, And again, colleges use social media a lot, but it's more to market opportunities to come to campus, to show you about their accomplishments, and mechanisms for students to engage and really learn about what it's like to be a student there. 
Mm-hmm. All right. Good. So, I mean, I think we got into this a little bit um, in terms of, you know, present your best self when you're on these sites. What are some other just sort of etiquette tips? Like what should students be aware of when they're trying to make a good mm-hmm. impression? Yeah, I, I think that you and Julia talked about it a, a bit. But one thing that I would really add in caution is to know that you don't need to be paranoid. However, most written communication that goes to colleges will actually be added to a student's admissions record with the online systems that they now use to track application materials. So you want to be cognizant in writing style that it's something that you would want all of the admissions committee to see. Um, For example, in an era where we're all doing very quick text messages, um, we are oversimplifying our word usage, being very casual in our written communication, quick to have typos because we're doing it on our phone. Um, So I encourage students to remember that emails and written communications really should not sound like text messages. And I've received hundreds of those emails that sound like text messages before. So I know that this is not me talking down to students. It's just reflecting a reality of human communication that I've seen in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think writing an email more like you would an e- a, a letter or an email, um, also taking time to proofread, maybe doing that with a friend or a parent or trusted mentor, reading emails out loud to yourself, really making sure that what you're sending out there is something you want linked to your name, to your application. Um, another thing around etiquette is I think that in this era of emails, websites, text messages, a lot of students are intimidated by phone calls. So I think, you know, practicing with a trusted mentor, if that's not a parent, that could be a teacher, a counselor, an aunt, whoever that is, um, for any practice, have some phone calls, pick up the phone. Um, A colleague of mine who worked at our front desk at um, Lewis and Clark said that she wished that students would just, you know, call a college they weren't even interested in, but just to practice, start asking some questions. Um, But getting that confidence to to know that phone calls are not scary. And like you said, the admissions officers, they're real humans, um, and they are doing this work because they're deeply passionate about education and about students. Um, So not being intimidated by that, I think, is a big thing. Um, Etiquette-wise, Definitely following up, saying thank you, sending notes, keeping in touch. Um, Also, in person, I think for students to practice something as simple as a handshake. Um, I was raised by a single mom who taught me that my handshake was really important, but I don't think all people are comfortable with that. So practice handshakes with people in your life and get feedback on how you um, can gain that confidence interacting in these professional settings. Yeah, absolutely. So unfortunately, we have to, um, you know, we have to close up now. There's so much more that could be talked about. I've also told students to, you know, like, sit up straight, you know, (laughs) like, that's one thing that's very important, as well as the handshake. So um, yeah, talk to your parents, follow their advice, pretend you're going to church in terms of like, you know, posture and all that other stuff. So Mm -hmm. yeah. And okay. I think rather than oh, thinking that parents are lecturing them, remembering that these are valuable life skills, right? It's not just for college. These are things that will serve us as we move forward in life, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you so much um, to Sarah. Um, and thank yes. you to all my guests today. Thank you, Sally. Have a good rest of your day. You too. All right. Now I want to tell you about our show next week. Beth Heaton, the regular host, will be back. And the show will cover how to negotiate scholarships, as well as whether you should consider working with an independent counselor. So be sure to join us for that one. Also, Getting In is running a contest called Ask the Host. Have you ever wished you could be on the air with us getting your question answered live by one of the hosts? This is your chance. If you're interested, please shoot us a private message on our College Coach Facebook account. Uh, We really want to, you know, hear from as many people as possible on this. And finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find past shows featuring topics like how to pursue a career in the performing arts and the always popular listener questions. If you like our show, be sure to rate us on iTunes. It only takes a moment of your time, and it is absolutely free. And last, don't forget, we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, so check us out out.
Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.